Welcome to The Destinationists, a show for the modern travel marketer. I'm Andres Lopez Varela. And I'm Lauren Quaintance. Coming up on the show this week, Christchurch is a city that's being devastated by two earthquakes. How do you even start to rebuild a tourism and destination brand under those conditions? How do you get the message out to people that the city and the region is open for tourism business again? Our guest on the show today will discuss that very challenge. Also, in Trend Monitor, we're going to look at Facebook's recent hire of a new head of travel and how tech companies are muscling in on the travel and tourism space. And what does that mean for marketers? Finally, in Campaign News, we'll be discussing a very interesting, very weird Life in Hell campaign for Helsinki Airport involving a Chinese influencer and 30 days stuck in an airport, much like the Tom Hanks film Terminal. All that's coming up in today's episode. Our guest on the show today is Rowan Warner. She's the General Manager of Marketing at Christchurch NZ, which is the tourism body in the South Island of New Zealand, in the city that was devastated by an earthquake just a few years ago. And Rowan has led the transformation of Christchurch's marketing through this very difficult time. Welcome to the show, Rowan. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here and tell our story. We, we were so interested to have you on the show, um, of course, to talk you know, about the kind of a disaster like this and how you respond to it as a destination marketer. And we just wanted to kind of take you back, first of all, to that, that, that moment, you know, that terrible moment, um, you know, in the time in February 2011, in those first few weeks. You know, what, what, what's it like in the office of a, of a tourism body? You know, what's your priority in those first few weeks after a disaster like this? Yeah, well, it's interesting to reflect back because we've definitely come a long way um, since 2011. So think back to what it was like to set the scene. We we weren't in an office, so I guess hard to say what it was like in the <laughs> office. We were working from um, a colleague's house, uh, and I guess that's what working in in a space of a of a major disaster is like because you have to recalibrate and think that the things that you were used to having um, surrounding you, the infrastructure. Um, the databases, all the access things that you would be used to, are uh, not normally, you know, those within easiest reach. So we're working from somebody's house, and the priorities were about information gathering. Right. What sort of information were you looking to gather? I think the key was around being really clear about what the situation was and having um, owning the content around who was doing what and what the situation in the city was and how the tourism industry specifically was coping in terms of what was open, what was not open, where guests were, where guests needed to be, what help was available. So we became the middleman for all of that information, both gathering and dissemination. Right, right. And how did that how did that shift in the first six months? Presumably you got an office and um and, and your and your priorities <laughs> shifted um in that time as well. Yeah, that's right. I think um, probably for the first six months and then maybe onwards from over for over a year, we really were about pure communications and around when is the time to, to market the city. And it was about ensuring that the correct messages and being really transparent about the messages the whole time. So that was from the first week through the first couple of years. It was just ensuring that the stock taken information was absolutely spot on and so we were continually being in touch with um, the city council around understanding issues around the city centre 
continually in touch with our key tourism operators to ensure we were representing them in the best possible way. I mean, obviously, you know, there was, um, you know, Christchurch is a sort of a, a major entry point to the South Island for international visitors. But did did when you did decide to start to market the destination, did you have to have that shift and think primarily about domestic first? Or you know, how did that mix change? It was an interesting one because I guess where there were different messages to tell um, different audiences. So the domestic market in New Zealand, um, everyone is connected to everyone. Um, you have a grandparent that lives in Auckland or a brother that lives in Dunedin. Everyone has a sort of a one-way communications channel to get an update about the city. Mm-hmm. The media were obviously very focused on Christchurch, so it was really hard to have any significant input into the domestic market around what Mm. was happening in the city because that message was getting overwhelmed through other channels. Right. Uh, When it came to international markets, that was quite different. Um, So alongside some of our key partners, we were able to ensure that the information flow was correct through the use of up-to-date imagery and video and ensuring that all of our partners were communicating the same message. Right. So Australia is obviously a critical market, but that's, I mean, it's its probably somewhere between those two in terms of international and domestic um, because, you know, it's a critical market, but the earthquake was very much streamed live here for 72 hours. I mean, I remember sitting on my on my couch and watching the live stream, you know, so you, that was probably somewhere between those two things. It wasn't quite domestic, but not quite international, but yet so critical to Christchurch's success. Oh, definitely. Um, We consider Australian visitors to be the bread and butter of the industry because they are the most significant in terms of volume from a visitor market. They were also the one, um, because of that uh, live streaming of um, the disaster on TV screens in Australian homes, the one that were the market that was the most significantly affected. So we saw in the first year a 24% drop in Australian visitors, which was about 80,000 people not coming direct to Christchurch. Um, and that number seemingly has been the hardest to get back. Um, we're definitely there now in terms of the numbers that are coming through the airport, but it's been a hard road, and it's predominantly that Australian holiday visitor that's been the one that's been the hardest to change the perception uh, around. And and largely that was sort of and something that we found there was around making sure demand and supply were pushed at the right time. So we were about transparency and honesty within the Australian market to to give up-to-date information about how the city was looking and only when we could really ensure that supply was met and supply is around air capacity. So once air capacity was, you Mm -hmm. know, coming back, were we really able to influence and change demand at the same time with the Australian market? Can I ask you, Rowan, about um, that approach to... I guess marketing again, you know, in stages because obviously it's, it's pretty clear that, that you, know, you guys had a very clear role initially in the first six months to a year to just kind of say, hey, this is what's happening, be really open mm-hmm. about about the situation, not necessarily marketing the destination rather than just kind of, you know, doing FYI. Effectively, okay. you started to market uh, domestically, internationally, Australia, as you pointed out, as a as a key source market for you. Um, how did those campaigns differ in terms of? what channels they used and what kind of objectives they had in relation to how you would market to Australians through campaigns pre-Quake? Mm-hmm. So you cast your mind back to late 2012 was the first time we decided to have a bit of a push into the market, yeah. um, predominantly focused on Eastern Seaboard. So 
back in 2012, um, user-generated content was becoming a bit more of a norm in terms of the way we were using it through marketing channels. And we decided that this would really be the core focus of our messaging because we knew it would give us an authentic and um, real approach to what we were doing. So rather than it be some of the what we'd done in the past around like the picture perfect images of New Zealand, we wanted to give Australians a look at what the true situation on the ground was, grit and all, because it wasn't the perfect picture. And so that was a big change for us. It was really all about honesty and transparency. And and in part, that is due to the fact that we didn't want any visitors coming to the city and then being surprised and having a negative experience because of it. So it was really all about matching the perception with expectations. Did that honesty sort of extend to, you know, liquefaction and all of those sorts of things that that were you know an ongoing you know challenge for the city yeah I think it's really interesting because um what I know of the city as a local and what I see of it as a visitor is really different and that like that is very common throughout most of destinations so where visitors tend to go and the experience that they tend to have uh can be interpreted differently and what I say by that is there was, you know, and there have been ongoing issues with people's housing and other things that, to be honest, for the most part now are, are solved. But that was really the local take on that. And from a visitor perspective, since 2012, we've been having pretty exceptional response to visitors that come to the city. I like to say that... Um, it's an emotional experience when you come to Christchurch and for the most part people tend to be uplifted about it. We like to think of our visitors as being glass half full and seeing things like a shipping container shopping mall fills them with enthusiasm rather than seeing it as the negative effect of the earthquake. Mm -hmm. So I think that the liquefaction was never part of the re-imaging of the city because it's not what visitors saw. And the reality is what visitors were seeing, some of it wasn't perfect and some of it still wasn't perfect, but a lot of it was really positive and that's the part that visitors are proud to show on the Instagram feed. And when you travel internationally, you want to put up the picture that's going to get you the most likes and shares. And so that's the part of Christchurch that people were really proud to show. So that was us trying to tap into that mindset of the visitor market, which worked really well. Yeah, We found that 2013 was definitely the tipping point for the start of the increase we saw in holiday arrivals, which has continued to now. Yeah, but a particular challenge you had is that the CBD was essentially just completely destroyed. So Mm. we think about the visitor experience versus the domestic experience. I mean, the CBD presumably is is fairly critical, usually, to a visitor experience. (laughs) So the CBD, I mean, I like to... I'm looking out the window now at the CBD from my office and the experience now is phenomenal and how far we've come compared to where it is now Mm. is just streets ahead and yes it is a really core component because visitors need a walkable accessible inner city as part of their their experience in Christchurch that is the role that Christchurch often plays for a visitor experience in New Zealand is having a city based within the South Island and it definitely Christchurch is now able to offer that with some phenomenal new initiatives that are happening in the city centre and it has been a work in progress for a number of years and when the tipping point came around it becoming a really positive and uplifting experience it made our jobs a lot easier in terms of being able to provide that experience for visitors. You kind of had that pre-CBD 
revitalization kind of you know phase if you like where, where you yeah. might have been um dispersing out to the suburbs or the neighborhoods or you know just outside of the city of the city of the metro area if you like and then you mm -hmm. had that point afterwards where you were like okay come back into the city because it's ready for you now and everything's working as it should and as you say it's a positive uplifting experience so um th that dispersal to the suburbs and the neighborhoods uh, and outside of the cbd mm -hmm. obviously must have become very important when CBD was destroyed. How, how did you manage that shift? And then how did you manage the shift back to the CBD? I think it's really interesting because it was the suburbs and also the outlying regions within Canterbury, so the mm. wider Christchurch. And I think it was a brilliant opportunity to expand people's understanding of what the wider region has to offer. So it was definitely a benefit. We saw a lot of group series tour operators going into some destinations like Hamner Springs or um, maybe Methven, which is our sort of ski resort, which is 90 minutes around um, out of the city. So some of the destinations that they wouldn't otherwise have tried. And now we see as some of them come back into the city centre to have an extended stay here, that they are also including those destinations within the mix as well. So often we feel that it's definitely benefited Canterbury and Christchurch from a broader perspective not just taking demand from one place and putting it into another. Yeah, so you've kind of been able to almost effectively grow that visitor economy by diversifying the the different places that you feature in your marketing beyond just the the core assets of Christchurch and the CBD, so to speak. That's right, and we think that Christchurch is placed exceptionally well at the moment with the growing investment in accommodation compared to the rest of New Zealand. Often within peak times, New Zealand is very stretched for accommodation capacity, mm -hmm. and Christchurch is now positioned with the growing number of accommodation that is coming online to help to deal with some of the issues that wider New Zealand is trying to cope with. So this alongside with a, of a region that is now well suited for dealing with other um, groups or FIT, depending on who, who the, what the town and destination is, is a really solid offering. And part of that is the post-earthquake environment shape that. Mm, because presumably that's very high quality accommodation because, you know, you, you did see, you know, basically a large number of those major hotel brands, you know, the, the, the CBD hotels were um, were damaged or, or destroyed. And so now there's, you've got those rebuilds, you've got a kind of, that must be fairly unique, I imagine, for not just in New Zealand, but in the region to have a place where all of the hotel product is, is, is you know, in the CBD is so new. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's quite staggering. At the moment, we are 306 accommodation establishments in the city. 40 establishments were lost during the earthquake. So we that was a big chunk. And the predominant type of accommodation that was lost was hotels. So 30 of the 40 establishments were hotels in the city centre that had considerable numbers of rooms. So we now are back to 74% of accommodation stock in the city centre. So we still have some ways to go. Um, but we have massive investment that's going on in the space, which is on the cusp of opening. So we just had the Crown Plaza reopen in the city centre a couple of months ago with 204 rooms. We have the Novotel. It's coming up pretty soon with, before the end of the year. Um, we have a distinction, which is scheduled for next year um, you know and and I'm and I've got the list in front of me of some other significant properties that are within the coming years for visitors in the city so obviously hotel stock is super important particularly in cities um, mm -hmm. and, and you know I think 
particularly in cities like yours, where it's a gateway to many other locations in the surrounding area. But is it um, more about just kind of getting back to the the state that the city was in pre-quake rather than maybe thinking about different ways to approach or kind of embrace that challenge? I'm thinking, you know, obviously mainly from a point of view of like the sharing economy, platforms such as Airbnb um, with their experiences and their and their accommodation products, that those might be other potential solutions to that. We often think to ourselves that the word rebuild doesn't really encapsulate where we are at the moment. So we okay. like to think, we are beginning to think that it is a new build and that the, the city is completely different to the city that it was before. So right. hotels, um, Airbnb, what have you, the shape and the makeup of the city looks so different um, to where we were. So previously, often people thought of us as a bit conservative and some of the old historic neo-Gothic architecture was the key identity of the city centre. As we see the new buildings come online, they are reshaping the identity of what the city is and it looks completely different. So the accommodation offerings again are a different makeup, so it might not necessarily be the same types of accommodation that we're seeing. And um, yes, we have we hear numbers bandied around that around 10% of all accommodation in Christchurch is sitting with um, some of those sharing um, sites, which is quite a considerable number. We also have mm. you know a large um, VFR visiting friends and relatives market within Christchurch as well. As I said, everyone knows everyone in New Zealand. So um, yeah, those truly authentic experiences are really an important market for Christchurch because we we know that um, be it your Airbnb host or your auntie they are the ones that will be shaping your perception of how the city is and what you should do in the city. What about the question of of safety, Rowan? I mean, I think it's an interesting one that, you know, in this part of the world, destination markets have kind of had the luxury to some extent of of taking that for granted, really. But it's something that, and I'm thinking here of the people that, um, the type of marketers that will be listening to this, that, that actually if you're in Europe or in other places, you have to you have to deal with a lot, you know, kind of addressing that consumer concern about safety. So this must have been a real shift for your team. How did you adapt to that, you know, kind of, and how did you address concerns about safety since presumably you can't 100% guarantee that there wouldn't be another earthquake? We know through the work we do with Tourism New Zealand that safety ranks as one of the most important parts of of a visit to New Zealand. So reiterating the message about safety for everyone that works in this space is really important. Obviously with us, um, we have a specific lens that we operate under and the sort of party line of how we approach that is knowing that we have become the safest city in New Zealand um, to visit. The building codes around how um, buildings are constructed now is above and beyond and it means we feel very confident that visitors that come here will be put in a safe environment. It's not a sexy message, but it's a really important mm. message to be included. Yeah. And I guess that's the part that we've come to realise that, yeah, we can show people phenomenal landscapes and interesting experiences within those landscapes, but it's underpinned by some really important messages and safety is one of them. So it does sit at the heart around of what we communicate to all our audiences. Domestic is included within that as well. 
So how did you get that message out? Because as you say, it's not a sexy message. It's not something that's going to be in the heart of your brand campaign. But what, mm-hmm. what sort of channels and, and, and means are you using to disseminate that message about safety, which is kind of, as you say, a kind of a, a hygiene factor that you've, you've yeah. got to address? I think predominantly the key channel for us to talk through that is around the travel trade. So one of the key learnings that we had after the earthquake was being present through all travel trade communications platforms, putting forward information that can be distributed via Tourism New Zealand to other travel trades. Being present um, allowed us to have those conversations one-on-one with the travel trade. We are fortunate enough to be able to be able to attend a lot of events that occur offshore, and we really prioritised that, knowing that if we could influence influences in this space, the travel trade, Tourism New Zealand, other partners that could tell the stories for us, and safety being one of those, that it was those people that we would have to convince in order to pass that on to their own consumers. I'm sure right. New Zealand being no different to Australia, that we're a long way away from some of our markets. A lot of visitors come through some of those traditional cha- channels, especially those markets that safety is one of the key factors of importance. So the travel trade mm. therefore become one of the, the key channels for that communication. Mm. Talk, talking about the travel trade, I, I guess one of the challenges I've read also was around length of stay, you know, how perhaps there was, you know, initially, and that may be changing perception that, that Christchurch wasn't worth more than a one night stay. How, how have you addressed that with wholesalers? Yeah, it's definitely been... Um, the, one of the key priorities around us is to, is to try and increase the length of stay from the travel trade. And part of that, actually, to be fair, was due to accommodation supply. So part of that was um, rectified once some of that new accommodation came online. So that did take quite a while until we had um, the opening of the IBIS. I'm trying to think what year that was. But the opening of the IBIS in town was sort of our first big accommodation provider who came back to the city centre. And from that, we then had a sort of massive increase um, in the following years that that came and that rectified some of our issues because they literally couldn't stay because they, no. there was no supply. Um, mm. Other than that, it's really about bringing people here, see, have a first-hand perspective or their inbound inbounder has a first-hand perspective that they can pass on to them, then it authenticates that, that message. Um, we recently held an event with 36 inbound operators from Auckland, a predominantly Auckland that came to Christchurch and the surrounding area. So again, we, we include Canterbury within that because it's a, key, it's a key message to the region and the proposition. And the results are phenomenal. So even if they live in Auckland, you know, the influence that they then have on the travel trade is really significant. And they are part of the domestic, they are a domestic audience. And yet having that first-hand perspective of what the city centre looks like right now is able to shape and the the travel behaviour of so many international visitors. Rowan, to what extent did your success metrics change and, and what you sort of were kind of tracking from a marketing point of view? Because obviously you've got, you know, those those typical kind of brand affinity metrics I and mean, you've got your performance metrics in terms of how well people convert and how much they spend when they book and all that sort of thing. Uh, presumably in the first year or so at least you were not at all looking at those metrics but then once things began to rebuild from that point on what was the process or structure around what you were measuring to know if you were being successful? Mm. Perception change is a hard thing to measure um, and I think that was the key measure that we were looking to quantify 
which was really tricky. We did have, and we don't actually do this at the moment, so we we feel like we've moved past um, the requirement, but we were doing quarterly tracking with key markets on their perception of the city, of the city um, which is an expensive operation to do, but it was yeah. the key priority in terms of understanding if we were affecting any change. And often we were doing that alongside Tourism New Zealand to help us. Um, as they were the key partner to help us with those key markets. Now we've reverted back into sort of more traditional methods of tracking performance. But um, yeah, that was it was it is a tricky one, and I think I often think about this because some of those key measures are very tricky to actually put numbers around, and then actually how you then influence and affect mm-hmm. change in those areas is very tricky too, and obviously is a number of a lot of interactions that you have and touch points that visitors have. So, I mean, this is no different to lots of other questions we have as destination marketers, but it was maybe just amplified by the fact that we had a long road to go and knowing that a slight change in perception is actually a really big win. So it doesn't necessarily Mm, mean it's an arrival. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a, you know, a visit to our website, but it could be something that maybe is just changing their belief in the city. Yeah, and we're also the fact you kind of go quite, you know, you sort of fall out of the consideration set for some people, and then you've got to get back in there, and so it kind of it kind of makes your job against your competitors even more di- more difficult because you're no longer just trying to best them; you're trying to get back into into people's minds. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. This is a tricky job. It definitely feels like we're in a much better place now. So, um, and we have a lot easier job now. So, I guess as well, we were trying to change people's perception around what was maybe had become ingrained, whereas now we feel like we've got we've still got quite a significant job to do, but because the positive stories are filtering through from obviously we're pushing positive stories, but they're coming through mm. from lots of different channels as well, then it definitely helps us to do our jobs. Rowan, really just to, to finish up, I just wanted to ask if you had one piece of advice for marketers who might be trying to leverage their destination economy out of a disaster or, or disasters um, of this sort of scale, what, what would that be? What would you say that they should really focus on? Well, I probably think that it depends on the stage that they're at, but initially the focus definitely needs to be on owning what you what you know and having really up-to-date information because everybody is relying on you to be able to paint the picture really um, accurately and you're only as good as your information. So a lot of our resource had to get pulled into finding out what that information was. So those people that were affected were not going to be coming to us to tell us what was going on. So it was up to us to sort of go out there and seek that information that would then pass on to all our partners and stakeholders. But now I guess like moving down the track, like we've come into a place which is really exciting, which is around having a collective voice and pushing that collective voice out through not just us, but all of our city partners and national partners to ensure that the, the Christchurch message that is now is realised and is brought to life in a way that's you know really applicable to each audience. So having that collective voice, that collective understanding about what we're trying to say and, and how we're trying to say it is where we're at now. So I think this has become the key learning for us that you have to figure out when the right time to do that is. In every situation is really different. And now we are at the stage where we are pushing forward and working collectively as a city. It's really exciting. So figuring out the right time to do that is definitely key. But I think we're all very excited about the opportunities that are ahead of us and what that means for the city and affecting some fantastic change and 
bringing life and vibrancy back into what is an amazing place to be, amazing place to live and visit. Brilliant. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. As a as a, a former alma mater of Canterbury University, I'm, I couldn't agree. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a wonderful place that everybody should check out. And I want to thank you, Rowan, for um, sharing the um, insights that you um, have with us today. Um, I, think, I think that listeners will have got a lot out of that, particularly when they're dealing with something of the scale and dealing with a destination which is, you know, going through some fundamental change. I think that's, you know, it, it really is a place that's been reimagined and for whatever reason, even if they aren't necessarily facing a disaster, this is there's some real takeouts there for marketers. Thanks, Rowan. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks, thank Rowan. you. So first of all, I just really enjoyed having two New Zealand accents on the show together. <laughs> that is that's probably my favourite accent. So I'm, I'm really glad we could pull that off. Tip. There was a lot of New Zealand. New Zealand, yeah, yeah, and a lot of words I had to like think twice about, but. It was great, um, but more importantly, actually, the, the 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 learnings there from you know kind of coming out of disaster. I think Rowan really encapsulated well when she said we're starting to think of it not as a rebuild but as a new build, and taking that kind of angle not just on a disaster um, in relation to destination marketing, but going okay, we're changing tack, we're changing our proposition, the destination's evolved, we got to do something totally new. Is thinking about it in that sort of revolutionary way, run that evolutionary way. There's a certain kind of benefit to that, I think. Not all the time, sure, but I think it's a really interesting perspective to take for destination marketers to kind of go, is this a, an evolutionary destination or is it a revolution? Is it something which is totally different? And if it is, then God damn, just embrace that, really kind of get amongst it. Mm, I mean, it, I mean, it's a great way to see it as an opportunity because it really is an opportunity for Christchurch, which is going to be one of the few cities that's being completely reimagined. I mean, they, they use that line in their, their marketing, yes. but it's true. You, this, it's not often that you get an opportunity to rethink a city in the way that it works and the way that it, it, it works for both um, locals and for tourists. Yeah. Um, that, that's a unique opportunity. And yeah. so I think, you know, you could see that as just a throwaway marketing line, but I think that Christchurch reimagined and it being a, a new build is, is absolutely true. I think the other interesting thing from that discussion is how there are very few destinations that have such a clear unified impression of what their personality is and what their message and what their proposition is to the outside world. And I think it's so it's such a luxury for destination marketers to have that unified voice, I think. And it doesn't happen all the time, especially probably in larger, more high profile destinations where everyone thinks of the destination a different way and markets it a different way. But these guys here in Christchurch really have aligned a lot of their um, stars, if you like, to be really clear with that unified voice about what Christchurch is. But I think, you know, it's, it's such a such a tricky thing to deal with, isn't it? I mean, you can put yourself in, 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 in their shoes, you know, you're sort of going along, you're doing your thing, you're marketing your city and then bang, out of the blue, yes. you know, because this is not a place that was prone to earthquakes, it wasn't expected, they, they didn't mm. even particularly know that there was a fault line um, running through the Canterbury Plains, which is the you know the region that the Christchurch sits within. So it really was a bolt from the blue. Mm. And so to, to, to how you have to shift and how you have to change your thinking to deal with something like that, is is a really you know interesting thing that that Rowan and her team um, have been through, and I think one of the most interesting aspects for it is was when to market. You know when yes. you know what's the timing of when you go back, and you yes. can imagine how nervous you'd be around that. And um, you know is, so. is it the right time? You know to start act- actively marketing this destination. It's the biggest learning I think from that discussion is to 
really have a think about that quite deliberately. And also maybe, you know, more broadly speaking for destinations that don't have that post-disaster kind of, you know, flavor or feel, if you like, um, how do you make a decision as to when to market in general? You know, looking at things like seasonality, looking at your audience's needs, looking at what your destination has to offer, looking at what your products are at particular times of year or whatever, and really being deliberate about that, I think. There's great power in that for marketers, and there's a great ability to actually properly shift the dial by doing that kind of marketing rather than just doing marketing for marketing's sake. Mm. And equally, to be really focused on what your metrics are, because I think that it's too easy, you know, not just for destinations that are going through, you know, significant change or upheaval like this, to sort of just rely on the old, you know, standard measures, whether they um, are consideration measures, whether they are those performance metrics. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Fascinating conversation. Okay, it's time for a trend monitor, and today we want to talk about how big tech companies are muscling in on the travel space and what that means for us uh, travel marketers. Uh, let's let's start with looking at the Pixel Buds from Google, which were announced late last year. If you've ever seen Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if you've read it, it's like a babel fish. You stick it in your ear <laughs> and you can instantly recognize other languages and it will translate them back. Um, this is an extension of a few Google products, the Google Translate app and the Google Assistant app, which um, you know has had a lot of teething problems over the past few years, but it certainly looks like it's improved. Um, and for me, it's one of the examples, I mean, it's going to have a large impact in the travel industry, especially if it becomes widely used, and especially if we start to see travel and destination marketers using it as part of their actual um, activity too. But for me, it's sort of another example of these large tech companies taking their hardware and software and their data as well and aiming it squarely at the travel industry and going, you know what, this is a space that we haven't exploited yet. And I think this is an interesting trend for marketers because it's increasing competition from outside of the outside of the vertical. And it means that, uh, I mean, Facebook also recently announced a new head of global travel strategy, very experienced gentleman by the name of Nicolas Pond. He He's worked at Expedia, um, uh, Hotwire, Hotels.com. Right. And so, you know, he's more on the, I guess, the travel sales side, if you like, from that experience. But they've already got a pretty robust travel um, category internally they're working with. And Google obviously has been aiming at travel for a while, but the Pixel Buds seem like a very forward-facing, consumer-facing kind of product. So I would say that, that this is an interesting trend from a point of view that for marketers, they need to consider that they're competing against these guys as much as they are against other destinations or other airlines, for example. Mm, I was going to say that. I mean, it, it, as a market, this sounds like a sort of slightly scary prospect, doesn't it? You know, Google, it Facebook in the same sentence as, you know, your little destination marketing um, body, you know, somewhere in, the, in you know, central Australia. Yeah, yeah. How, how, do you, how do you deal with that if you're all sitting in that seat? What, what, what do you need to know about Google and Facebook I in think this space? The key is to get to know how they use data. Get to know how that data can be made available to you. They have a lot of products, um, particularly for marketers, um, from the search kind of category side for Google and then from the uh, the paid media side for Facebook. They can give you an idea of people's interests, their demographics, their behaviors. And in many ways, a lot of smaller travel and destination businesses may have been already doing this without even realizing when they're doing mm -hmm. search engine optimization for their website, for example, when they're putting up small ads on Facebook, which they think it's just a small campaign I'm going to run for a week, $500, if you like. But you're already actually using that. I would encourage marketers to really 
get amongst the data to understand, you know, look at the back end of, of some of these tools. Because the more that they come into this space, the easier it's going to be to access that data. You know, the harder it's going to be to rise above the noise if you don't know that data that they're actually using and that they're basing their own products and their own offerings from. And I think obviously it's certainly an important starting point to then inform the story that you want to tell um, in your marketing. Mm, absolutely. And to take the in-the-air technology specifically, which sounds like a, a positive thing, yes, that, that potentially, the, the earbuds, yeah. yes, the earbuds, that you, you know, a technology that you as a destination marketer could harness, how how could you incorporate that into marketing? What, what ways could you think about in, including that in your plans? I think the, uh, the interesting thing about this technology is that it leverages voice search as well, which is growing in relevance for consumers. Searching is the most natural behavior we do mm. online, right? It's the first mm. thing, like... You're watching a TV show, you're like, oh, where have I seen this guy? And then you go, you go on, you know, who is John Smith from Show X? And then Google says, oh, you, this is... You mean Siri, you're talking to Siri. Or Siri, you're talking to Siri, yeah. You're talking to Siri, you're talking to... to, to I have an Android phone, so I talk to... I say, okay, Google, I sound like an idiot. My, my partner always laughs at me, but I find it very useful. And, and that is the basis of a lot of these technologies. And so I think the important thing is to understand how are you potentially appearing in voice search and how, how are you structuring the content on your digital properties like your website or if you have an app to make it easy, to make it sound bitey, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, because increasingly we're seeing other devices that use voice uh, search a lot, like the, um, the Alexa device from Amazon, from Google Home, um, and they're just spitting out short sentences. And sometimes that's the only interaction that people might have with your product or it might be the first interaction they have with your product. And so certainly you want to make sure that you're um, making your information available in short, digestible, compelling kind of snippets, if you like. So certainly, you know, consider how that might work for you. So that's, you know, that's really the importance of that sentence. You know, it's critical, you know, the structure, yeah. you know, how you how you pack information into that sentence, what you want to say, you know, that, that's really, you know, critical to your marketing potentially. But do you see this as being something that, voice search it's developing it's something that people might use in destination or is this in the inspiration planning phase of the travel consumer cycle uh, that's a good question i think um how many times have you been in destination you're lost you're not quite sure where you're going or you're looking for a recommendation for someone to eat or you're looking at a monument and you want to know the history that's it that's it that's it yeah you take a photo you want to find out more about it all those are triggers for voice search um i think they're always going to be prevalent in the pre- phase you know when you're discovering your destination options when you're planning and booking whatever but they're also in destination very much so and so we need to be thinking about how we give it to them in ways that are relatable so they can continue to engage with the destination and then they can also share their stories and their content about it too fascinating and probably like driverless cars it's not as far away as we imagine no not at all i reckon i reckon we'd come back have this conversation in a year and um a lot would have changed maybe even less than that So on campaign news this week, we have a very interesting uh, campaign which kind of meshes a bunch of things together um, in an interesting way. It's the uh, hashtag Life in Hell, that's H-E-L campaign, from um, TBWA for Finnish airport operator Finavia, specifically for Helsinki Airport. And the goal of this campaign is to demonstrate that the airport at Helsinki is the best in the world, I guess. Um, It's certainly, it's got got a lot of high marks, got a positive reviews from all the official kind of airport, I don't know, marking bodies, if you like. Um, And the facilities that they have there at the airport certainly rank really highly. 
particularly for travelers between Europe and Asia. And they're very much targeting um, Asian and Chinese um, tourists and travelers here because they've um, employed um, a Chinese influencer called Ryan Zhu, and he is living at Helsinki Airport for 30 days. This campaign started, uh, I think, on the 10th or the 12th of October. And so the campaign is called Life in Hell. Um, and the videos to, to launch it have been quite um, interesting, very tongue-in-cheek, uh, and very much... Um, I don't know, almost like self-deprecating, but I'm not sure if it's in a good way. And I certainly, I wanted to bring this this little campaign nugget to our discussion today because I don't really know how I feel about this campaign, if I really like it. I, I mean, I sort of like the self-deprecating angle, but at the same time, I sort of feel like, A, is it too much? Um, and B, isn't every airport in the world or many airports in the world vying for this title anyway? That's what I want to step back to that and say, you know... Uh, airport marketing in general, marketing in the airport, you yes. know, we're kind of in considering the function that I know, I know that Changi, for example, which also yes. um, in Singapore, which routinely wins a lot of awards and it's actually an amazing airport. Um, you know, they, they also do spend quite a lot of marketing um, budget. Yes. Um, and I, and I, I sort of wonder why, like I wonder why for me as a traveler, is that going to, I wonder how much that's going to influence my decision. You know, for example, from here in Sydney, I can fly, you know, via Dubai or I could fly via Singapore. Mm. Isn't it? You know, is the, is the airport really going to influence that decision? I, I'm just not sure. I, I'm 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 sort of torn about it. I mean, I understand that it's, you know, obviously critical to their remit to you know get a you know larger number of of travellers going through those yes. um, those airports. But um, yeah, I just wanted to step back and talk about the marketing of airports yeah, I agree. in general. I agree, and I think it's particularly interesting when you consider that Qantas, for example, with its partnership um, through its partnership with Emirates. Has decided that it will, it will very shortly go back to Singapore as its kind of um, checkpoint, if you like, in Asia on its flights to, to Europe and to London in particular. Um, and Emirates will cover the Middle East kind of route, if you like. So, I mean, it's kind of the airport you stop at is potentially determined more by your airline choice and, you know, by proxy, what loyalty program you belong to. Because, I mean, I, I don't know that I'd go out of my way to go to Dubai if I wasn't traveling, if that, you know, if my flight didn't take me that way specifically. Mm. I think that what's interesting about, about this campaign specifically is that they're targeting a very specific kind of bracket of traveler between Europe and Asia. And, and you know, given the use of a Chinese influence, presumably China's tier one and tier two cities are really the, the key um, audience there. And potentially the, the difference there with this campaign is that maybe in fact that audience has not had airport marketing uh, done to death in the way that other long haul destinations may have had uh, mm. in the first place. So maybe that's actually a really intelligent insight, which you know we can't necessarily tell from the creative and, and the reporting of the campaign, but maybe that's kind of baked in there somehow. Mm. I mean, presumably the target audience here is you know millennials, or I mean, it's been described as a as as um, the the Truman Show, you know, it meets the terminal. Yes. 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 You know, and 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 it's and it's designed by one of the guys behind Survivor. Yeah, that's right. So, one co-creator or something like that. Yeah. So that sort of reality TV aspect of it, and, and I'm wondering what role that um you know obviously social media is going to be critical to this, and 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 I'm, I'd be interested to know what the other aspects of the campaign are, um and how they will you know kind of um what he's really going to do for yeah, for thirty for days, 30 days exactly, and, and what right? kind of content that's actually going to create and how interesting that's going to be. 
I wonder if it will sustain itself for 30 days because I, I don't even think that... Isn't Survivor like 12 episodes or something? Yeah. So this could be like 30 episodes or more. So this guy's certainly taking on a lot. I mean, hopefully it doesn't bite off more than it can chew. So look, the verdict is kind of like, meh. The jury's out. The jury is out. Oh. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode of Destinationists. Remember, you can find more of our shows on Apple Podcasts or at Stitcher. And if you'd like to know more about us, our website is www.thedestinationists.com. Follow us on Twitter, that's The Destinationists, or connect with us on LinkedIn. I'm Andres lopez Varela. I'm Lauren Quaintance, and we'll be back next time with more insights from top travel marketers around the globe.